Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're here with episode 122. And Tony, our esteemed guest today has the wonderful title of being the first person that we've interviewed twice. Absolutely. And and Kerry and I love a great chat anyway. But yes, it is a very auspicious title, uh, Kerry. And you, you are the first of many things, but you're also the first guest we've ever had interviewed twice in our podcast. So welcome. Back. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. I've never yes. said welcome back before. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite honoured. Thank you. So for those listening, um, Podcast 72 was with Kerry Bolton um, and we brought her in and we always bring her in as the exit strategist, the best in the business. And, you know, I actually picked up the phone again the other day to get some advice from Kerry. So she's always there to, to help me through certain things. But Kerry, you've, you've had a lot of things going on at the moment um, and we thought we'd get you back on because I think Tony's been inspired by a recent book that he's been reading um, and also a lot of questions by clients. So today we sort of want to talk about that magic number, um, Tony, and, and I know it's something that gets brought up a lot with you, but also how to get to that magic number. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Kerry is definitely the expert at that. She is a, uh, a best-selling author of uh, two or three books, Kerry. Two, two, two at the moment. I put two at, at the moment. Two at the moment, yeah. And, <laughs> yes. and has uh, been seen, obviously, no one will get to see uh, Kerry's face on this podcast because it's uh, just voice. But uh, she has been on numerous uh, breakfast shows and uh, been uh, interviewed on numerous times regarding extra strategies. And I think this is the thing, Kerry, is that as, as we move forward, realistically, over the next decade, there's probably around about three, you know, trillion dollars about to change hands, and and there's two aspects, uh, or there's actually three aspects of stuff that are going to change hands, and that is uh, one, uh, two areas that you are heavily involved in, but one of them is just superannuation, uh, so just superannuation death benefits as well. Uh, the second part is, of course, property. Uh, which you and your family have been heavily involved in for decades, numerous decades. And uh, the third thing is people who have built successful businesses who are selling them and or who are looking at selling them over the next, you know, five to 10 years as well. And if we have a look at that last sort of cohort, sometimes you speak with people and it's interesting that they might have businesses and they might be turning over several million dollars and they might have good, healthy you know, 30, 40% EBIT sitting in those businesses. But a lot of, and they might have 20 or 30 employees, but a lot of those people don't actually think their business is worth anything. Um, and which quite surprised me. And then you have other people on the other hand who are just sales, 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 and no, no equity and no asset who think their business is worth $20 million uh, because that's what somebody sold an IT company for a few years earlier. So uh, can you give us a bit of background and some of your experience in those areas as we work towards that magic number? Absolutely, uh, Tony. And I think what's really important is that um, it's a little bit of a mindset issue uh, where the business owner really needs to think about the end. Um, what And most don't um, in, in terms of thinking about uh, begin with the end in mind. And um, especially when you've been uh, in your business for a very long time and growing it, uh, you may well have had uh, some really good income from it. Um, but at the same time, it's you and the business is uh, very risky because you are the person who is driving everything and uh, therefore it doesn't become very transferable. So really thinking about where is, where's value and um, in some surveys that I've been doing perpetually over the last four or five years, the four big issues that have always been raised is 
Number one, knowing how much my uh, business is worth. Number two, um, getting started on thinking about exit and how do you make a plan. Uh, number three is timing, you know, figuring um, when to get out. And number four is people, myself. How do I get myself out of the business? So um, keeping in mind that those are real hurdles that people do need to face, it really comes down to the the key factors that actually drive value in a business. Um, and then you take the next leap, which is how we started um, the conversation, which is about understanding what the number is, the magic number that you really actually need to be able to uh, live the life that you want after business. And it's not only that, the number, but it's also you, the person. Um, because as you uh, you may well know, I think may have told listeners this early in the earlier podcast, um, uh, I'm now in what I call my sixth reinvention. So um, I've, I've retired um, twice. And the first time was for two weeks because I was so bored. Um, <laughs> the second, yeah. And the second time was just for a little bit longer because I thought I wanted to uh, spend some time with the children who were growing up at that stage. Um, I think it's really important that people start to think about this now. And as you said, there's a, tri a, you know, a trillion dollar wealth transfer happening simply because of the aging population in terms of baby boomers, uh, the first of whom turned uh, 65 in 2011. And we get to a real peak in 2028. Uh, but over it's basically over the course of 20 years, there's a huge transition. So um, getting started now, giving yourself enough time to make any changes that you may need to make uh, within the business, within structures, um, from planning, estate planning, etc, to get that to get your house in order to maximize the value of your business so that you can create um, a life of freedom and purpose after business is something to think about to start thinking about now. Really I think, Perry, just, just to add to that, and Jamie did mention the book that I'm reading at the moment, Shoe Dog uh, by Phil Knight, the, which is basically the memoirs of the making of Nike. Um, and But it's interesting, though, that a lot of people sometimes get uh, false ideas on what the value of their business is. But, so as an example, I think I made a tongue-in-cheek comment uh, a few months ago to Willard um, who, you know, regarding afterpay shares. And I said, based on afterpay's valuation on their profit, that values Kafka and Bond, you know, $20 trillion. Uh, now, that's obviously not the case, but it, it really does come down to uh, different industries also have different valuations, different valuation methodologies and things like that as well. So, for example, a, a tech business that, you know, we've spoken in the past to VC people, um, you know, on these podcasts, we've spoken to other, uh, you know, the CEO of a listed company of why did he list the company rather than going to VC or getting private equity money and was, the listing was very successful for him. So what was the difference? But sometimes it's a case of some, some people see those valuations, get stars in their eyes, but don't realise that they're in, they might actually be in, they might still be in tech as an example, but don't realise that the tech side of the industry they have or how their business is structured, where it's cash flow rather than recurring revenue with no basic assets or no ownership of any IP, 
can have vastly different valuations there as well. So how do you come in and start talking to them about that, especially if their valuation methodology or thought process is either way too optimistic or way too pessimistic? How do you come in and actually start bringing grounding them on that? Yeah, the, f- the first thing that we look at is we look at the business from two angles. Um, firstly, how it, attractive it might be um, in terms of, um, you know, market positioning, um, obviously financial results and a few, few uh, areas like that. But then also looking at it from an external perspective, from a, a, an acquirer or a buyer's perspective. And let's say... Um, the key value drivers and and let's have a look at those key value drivers and and how how you're positioned how your business is actually positioned so clearly financial results are an important part of that um and and with a lot of today's businesses they are going to be valued on multiples you know unless you're lucky enough to find a strategic um acquirer someone where your business and this is where we're talking about those massive multiples where your business um, once it's merged with another business, exponentially improves the financial results of that uh, that that other business. And look, we can think we think about that. Obviously, that's um, and and that's part of the process of thinking about who a strategic um, acquirer might be. But at the end of the day, it's still going to come back to some financials. Um, number one, and making sure you've got really strong financials for at least three years. Um, Second thing would be growth market. Uh, Is there growth left in the market? So many business owners wait until it's too late. You know, they they see there's a you know great opportunity. Yes, there's a lot of room in the market. There's great growth. Uh, I'm just going to hang around for a few more years, and they they ride it over the top. So um, uh, so that that's really important to leave something else in there. And I have to say, we were so fortunate in selling our first real estate business in 2007. Hey, who knew the GFC was coming? <laughs> Fantastic timing. Jerry, we've, got, we, we've had that experience before um, and actually some discussions I've had with somebody before and, and you know, the market, I guess, in our industry was a lot better than it is now for, for small businesses selling. Um, and, and, you know, he made the comment, I can draw the income for another year or two, but the value of that business would have taken a massive hit now and, and that thought of, oh, I can get the, the income um, would have really hurt his long-term future. Correct. Absolutely right. So uh, it's about balance and understanding that you've got to leave something else on the table for the next person who comes along. Um, Then what's, um, let's have a look at the business from how dependent it might be on, say, a customer or a supplier or a key employee as well. Do we have any concentrations in those areas? Because that's risk as far as any acquirer is concerned. Um, the next area might be around marketing. Have, have you, have you, are you one of so many that you don't have any distinction in the market? What's your secret sauce? Is there some sort of uh, marketing uh, differentiation? And as Warren Buffett famously said, have you got a moat around your business? Like that's the only businesses that he wants to invest in is that those that have got a moat around their business, they've got some real differentiation. So let's have a look at that. Um, cash flow. Hey. When someone acquires your business, there's uh, colloquially two checks. One, they're going to pay you for the business. The second one is what they've got to put in in terms of um, working capital. So what's your business like? Is it it generating good cash flow or is it consuming cash? So that's another risk factor that's uh, 
um, an acquirer is definitely going to look at. Um, customer service. Have you done some surveys? Can you demonstrate and um, really validate where your customers see you? Do you give good customer service? Do you have a net promoter score, for example? Do you do that sort of thing? So, Can you explain um, the net promoter score? A lot of people wouldn't have heard of that before. Yeah. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will have experienced participating yeah. in one. And so to explain it, if you, you might have... Um, uh, done a survey or something online. The banks are, are pretty famous uh, for doing it. Um, and they'll pop up, there'll be a little pop up that says, um, on a scale of one to 10, how was your experience today? Or how would you rate your service you received today? And so, and you do that. And then they ask another question, which is, um, how um, could we have improved on uh, that score? Or why did you give us that score today? So net promoter score is about taking all the people who um, are promoters for your, who might be promoters for your business. So one of the other questions, I think there's three questions. They ask you a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend us you know, to someone? So it's taking um, those people, the promoters, and subtracting the detractors who are right down the other end of the scale and you get a net score. Um, people, the big names that we all know, like Amazon, um, et cetera, they get scores, Apple, you know, they get scores 50, 60, 70, you know, out of 100. So um, if you if you do, do those sorts of um, surveys, um, and that's an example, is a net promoter score, someone might ask you, you know, if you've done that. Um, uh, and a, another area particularly, and that's the big one, and one of the areas that I mentioned earlier is how dependent is the business on you? Because if, if, the, if you are the driver, one of the main drivers in your business, and a lot of your IP is in your head, then you are going to need to take some major steps to be able to get that out, you know, how into systems, into processes, so the business can run without you. Because every single one of those factors is a risk that any acquirer is going to look at. And it's going to take points off when you start to get into due diligence. So if we if so, the way I go about it is basically doing a reverse due diligence. So let's go through that process now, um, understand where you're at now, then set an action plan and, and priorities on how what we need to do in order to get to the, the best possible result that we can be to present the business before somebody comes along and knocks on the door or before you put it out there on the market. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, there's, there's a, some real gems in what you said there. And the example I'll quickly give is out of the book, uh, Shoe Dog. Um, I've just read the chapter. Now, everyone knows what Nike is today and everyone knows their shoes and their marketing and everything you just mentioned uh, the net promoter scores. Sometimes in those net promoter scores, you get you get two people that answer, the ones that are raving fans and the ones that just don't like you at all. And the question I sometimes ask is, if the ones don't like us so badly, why are they actually still there? If I don't, if I don't like, if I'm going to answer one of those for Apple and I give it a horrible score, why do I keep going back and getting a new iPhone? So it's uh, but that, so that that's the question I have on that. But on the on the Nike example or Shoe Dog. Uh, he originally owned a company called Blue Ribbon, of course. Uh, now, all they were was selling runners. They were the US distributor for the running company Tiger, which is known here in Australia as Essex. 
um, and they were the US distributor uh, for that. And at the time in 1970, they, they, uh, they'd been growing 100% every year, but they owned nothing. Basically, every time they sold runners, they used that cash to buy more runners, to sell more runners, to buy more runners, to sell more runners. They actually had zero assets whatsoever. And basically, he just kept spending his cash flow to buy more runners and getting a line of credit from the bank to purchase, sell, pay it back, and repeat, rinse and repeat. Uh, his first line of credit from the bank was $20,000. And in this example, he went to the bank and said, I want $1.2 million, got 600000 in sales. And the bank said, absolutely not. No, you can leave now. Uh, so, because there was nothing, there was nothing to support it. Uh, the bank didn't want to go and collect thousands of pairs of runners and have to sell it to get their money back. And so he went to market at that stage. Venture capital was just new, so he went to market at that stage and said, "I want to sell three hundred thousand shares at uh, two dollars each." And he got zero. And basically, it was because he had no cash. He, the the numbers it's not what you earn it's what you get to keep of course and he had no cash he had no assets and even though he had 50 60 employees at the time uh, mainly salespeople, there was nothing backing it now if you have a look where nike because all he was was a distributor if you have it of one shoe uh, and that's it if you have a look where nike is today nike owned they own the brand they own the ip uh, they don't just sell runners they sell lifestyle so there is, so you just actually are buying into the future. Just do it. It's one of the greatest things. I remember actually Jeremy, my youngest son, when we were in Disneyland and he asked me a question, he was wearing a Nike cap and he asked me, he asked me a question and I turned around and said, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I really want to do that. And he just pointed to the hat and just said, just do it, dad. Uh, but that's the example of, uh, of that. And I still remember that vividly. I just thought, amazing branding so jeremy would have been about 10 when we we're at disneyland amazing branding branding that a 10 year old would point to his hat and say that so but they they now have something they now have something yeah. to sell they've got uh, they've got a whole lot whereas previously when he asked for money they were, they were nothing well i think it brings up a really important point and that is a, a lot of um, business owners don't recognize that they have quite a lot of intangible assets. And that's the sort of thing that you're actually talking about, Tony, then. Yeah. Um, their IP, it may, their assets are their IP. And it's about finding the value in those intangible assets as much as it is in hard assets. So, um, and particularly in today's market, especially, it's the intangibles that can be really um, valued. And But it's about making sure that you you in your business are able to do that, you know, and justify them. So um, highlighting intangibles in terms of assets as much as the hard assets is really important as well. And that's the sort of thing that we really look closely at to see what do we need to do to tangibilize the intangibles? Yeah, create value around them. So that check, we, we sit down with the client, they've got a great business. And actually an interesting statistic, you know, the, the saying that, uh, the first generation makes it, the second generation spends it, uh, the third generation loses it in respect to family businesses. Now, three generations can be a family business over the space of 60 or 70 years, but we've got examples of fifth generation family businesses that we work with uh, who are very successful. Um, and the success was really made in their case. So it was huge, huge business, but their success was really made in the third generation uh, where they stepped outside the norm and did something new. But what I've also found with that too is that you're dealing with different generations as well. So if grandma and grandfather had a, a staunch view set of how they want to do things, 
And now you've got the next generation of 20-something-year-olds who are saying, no, that's not the way you do it nowadays, but this is the way we've always done it. Um, sometimes you can have those clashes as well. So, Kerry, on that, and sometimes it might be a case of, well, grandma and grandpa got this great business, kids are running it, they're getting frustrated. Grandma and grandpa, do they sell it? Do they hand it to the next generation? These are That's succession planning in respect to that check because grandma and grandpa might have built some good assets, but they need, they need a check now. They want that check to actually go for generations, not just uh, for everything they've worked for, but also to go for generations as well. So have, have you seen that come across that a bit as well? Certainly have seen it. And I think it's it's quite a, um, you know, that's it's a challenge to sit down and have those discussions and actually put them out there on the table. Because, um, you know, when you're getting, uh, as, you're, as you're aging, you're looking for income streams that are passive, so to speak. Um, so, you know, while a significant uh, portion of your wealth is actually tied up in that business, how do you get it out? So if the, um, the guarantee, there, there needs, we really need to look at uh, the, the income and the dividends that are coming perhaps out of the company. And if that's contingent on, uh, you know, say grandma and grandpa having been very active, having had very active roles and without them being able to hand that over and feel confident and that the, um, the next generation is going to be able to successfully run the business and still provide them with those dividends uh, necessarily, or maybe it's going to be a lump sum over time. We have to look at all of those options. And frankly, it's, you know, sometimes it's so much easier sometimes to sit down with a facilitator uh, who can help uh, those discussions um, to keep some um, pragmatism. <laughs> Emotions are going to run deep. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes it just, yeah, the, the, the sense of entitlement that might exist amongst the next generation is something that really needs to be addressed. I mean, the, yeah. those emotions. I think there's two, think there's two parts of that. Sometimes it's that entitlement, but also sometimes grandma and grandpa and it's usually grandpa they've probably hung around a little bit too long correct you know, they, yeah. they, they actually they're, they're 80 years old now and there's just you know it's um should this be continued uh, the way they've been doing it you know successfully for 40 years or is it that next generations and i think one of the examples uh that we give of very successful transition where it's been kept in the family and it's done through, um, you know, a uh, business management firm that both of us have worked with in the past, as Aquila Shoes. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that, that's a very successful where, you know, uh, Grandpa is still around, but he's a very minority shareholder now, but they actually bought him out. They raised yeah. the equity to actually buy him out and went to the next generation. So it wasn't just a case of, well, don't I just inherit this? So yes, it was, uh, exactly. So. Grandpa got the check, which you know what grandpa and grandma don't uh, don't spend is going to go down to trigger filter down to the generations, but as revenue outside of the business, the business. now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Actually, it's funny you should mention that because I have two clients at the moment who are both eighty, two different businesses, both of whom started their businesses. Um, and one who is um, in, of all things, biotech and 80-year-old, uh, she's in Queensland and I can tell you she's just a joy. Talk about liberated. <laughs> um, 
Unfortunately, there is no family to take over for her, but um, she's already identified through, um, we've been working together for a couple of years now, and she's identified uh, one of her management team in particular, who is a key candidate to take over the business. Um, they export, frankly, during COVID, they've been going gangbusters. It's amazing. Um, and uh, she's she's really now looking at, probably, she's still looking at a time horizon of about five years before she really wants to exit the business, but and but she'll still be there as a support. The other one is a, a, a gentleman who is 80 and he's had a huge business that he started 20 years ago um, in um, uh, professional audiovisual media, had retail at one, at one stage, has, has drawn it right back into just being totally online now, um, and he's been pressured by his better half or his other half saying, oh, come on, time to get out of the business. You know, you've got to. So um, we're really looking closely at getting that business ready now for sale. And uh, But he doesn't want to let go. He doesn't want to let go because it's his life. Yeah. And I think that's the key, isn't it, is understanding there is life after work as well. Uh, but a lot a lot of these SME owners have, have been working seven days a week for 40 years. Uh, you're, you and your family have been involved in real estate, as I said, for five decades. So I know John would have been absent most Saturdays, as an example. So it's um, as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, so it's, um, that, that's just part of the business. So I suppose in, in closing here, Kerry, is that what we're saying is that it's better to start looking at these things about five years before you start hunting for that check or having everything ready and done. So if somebody did come out of the blue and come to you and say, We've got our eye on you. You're an acquisition target. You uh, give us your numbers. We can say here and basically open it up straight away, and they can see how efficiently everything is run and everything Absolutely. is there for them. Absolutely. As I said, you know, when we sold our first real estate business, it was someone came along. We were we were not for sale. <laughs> Somebody just came along and made us an offer too good to refuse. Like Kerry Packer with Channel Nine. You know, his famous saying. Um, every business should be ready for sale, no matter what. Even if you don't want to sell it, it still should be ready for sale because to have a really good, successful business that someone else wants to buy means that it is going to endure and it's going to last. So always have your business, business ready for sale, no matter what, because you never know when the Alan Bond is going to come along in your life, you know, as he, as he did, paid Kerry Packer a billion dollars <laughs> for Channel 9 and then he bought it back three years later for a quarter of a million. So, you know. Let's not bad. <laughs> so, so, not a bad transaction for the Packers. <laughs> so, yeah. Good result. But at the same time, I mean, it's it's really just drawing on that as a um, as a demonstration, and that no matter what your business is, no matter where you're at in whatever stage, even build your business so that it's always ready for sale, even if you have no intention of doing that ever always have it ready because it's going to be a fantastic business. It's going to be paying you great dividends, um, you know, and it is going to be attractive, you know, you know, to someone who may come along. You don't know what your circumstances, what what might change your circumstances. You know, the, the dastardly Ds, you know, um, uh, disinterest, divorce, disease, you might, you know, suddenly be hit with illness, which of course is what happened with us on the second time around. So, yep. um, you know, the uh, any sort of disruption like we've had now with COVID. So, you know, these are things that are part and parcel of running a business that a lot of people just don't really take the time to think about. So um, I, would, I just 
I suppose I want to encourage everyone to start the process. It doesn't matter um, where you're at, in what stage of your business. Start the process um, and then you will be ready for whatever decision you decide to make at whatever time you decide to make it. Wonderful. So it's, uh, I think on that note, Kerry, we're going to put all your links uh, in this podcast as well. Uh, when we are out of uh, this wonderfulness of home, uh, working from home, uh, we will be catching up personally, but we'll, we'll start working with some of our clients with you as well, who are at that stage now, who are saying, okay, where are we going? Even if it is passing it down to the next generation where are we going with this as well? So yeah. really, look, really look forward to that and face-to-face, not face-to-face via a screen. Yeah, that'd be terrific. And I was just going to say, Tony, that um, if any of the uh, listeners would like to just run through a quick little um, online uh, report and, and to sort of get a freedom number, a freedom score report um, about discovering their financial readiness to exit or even, uh, also to... I've, can make available two separate reports, completely um, complimentary, no charges, no costs involved whatsoever. Um, and we'll put the links here in the um, um, below the podcast or with the information. And um, so they can do those online and, and just get some feedback, which will be really helpful. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks, Gary. Thank A you very pleasure. much, Gary. Great seeing My you again. Pleasure. Thanks. Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.